Welcome to the Enterprise GTM Podcast, hosted by Tim Zonka and Vidya Raman. Each episode takes a deep dive into how to successfully maneuver the unique dynamics of enterprise go-to-market while candidly discussing successful approaches, pitfalls, and failures alike. Our guests are seasoned company founders, GTM execs, technology buyers, and end users. Please note that the views expressed by individuals in these podcasts are not to be treated as investment advice. They are also not representing the views of their employers, current or previous. Welcome to the Enterprise GTM podcast. My co-host Vidya and I are excited to have Ajit Singh on the show today. Ajit's the founder of not one, but two unicorns. So Ajit founded Nutanix in 2009, which went public in 2016 and was the largest tech IPO of that year. And it's today a public company making well over a billion in ARR and has more than 23,000 customers around the world. Nutanix is a leader in the hyperconverged space, and Ajit also founded ThoughtSpot in 2012, which is valued at over $4 billion. ThoughtSpot is the business intelligence space, taking on incumbents like Tableau, Microsoft, Power BI, and many others. Ajit, welcome to the show. Hi, Tim and Vidya. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So let's jump right into it. So you started Nutanix in 2009. It was quite some time to start a company, I should note, given that the banking crisis had happened the year before that. So you are someone who is very, very familiar with the kind of economic environment that we are currently in, which is basically a downturn. So what we thought we could do to get this started is, you know, maybe anchor ourselves, this, especially this portion of that conversation, in the context of the current economic environment that we are in. And then, you know, just revisit some of the things that we know about how you like to think as an entrepreneur. So we know you like large existing markets. So, you know, as a founder, you like to go after large existing markets or net new markets. Then after that, you like to focus on the problem that you want to solve and and then idea. So basically market, problem, idea, almost in that order and existing market over new market. And as a result, essentially, you know, taking on execution risk is something that you've said you like to do over taking on market risk. So the question we have for you is that given the current economic construct in particular, how strongly do you think that would still apply for an early stage startup that gets started today? Perhaps maybe one that you start, um, if, if you were to do so now, how strongly do you think that applies? And the reason why we wanted to start off with this question is, as I'm sure you know, a lot of startups are struggling to sell to enterprises in particular, because enterprises, especially in such a climate, like to have a single throat to choke. And they are often settling for good enough, but not great solutions that they can get from tried and tested vendor, if you will. So again, do you think that still applies going after existing markets? And yeah, we'll we'll let you take it from there. Sure. Yeah, thanks, Vidya. That's um, actually a number of things covered in that question or set of questions. So let me try and answer them the best I can. Talked about the macroeconomic environment that we are in and there's this overhang that markets might go into a correction anytime and what's going to happen with inflation and monetary policy and so many other uh, things. So I think the current market or current economy is not easy. 
especially given the uh, sort of massive change that has happened investing environment when it comes to startup investments this year 2023 has been really a big pullback across the board across different stages whether it's early stage mid or later fundamentally i think it is actually healthy because things had gotten to a stage where there was an unhealthy level of activity that was going on eventually many of those startups that were funded over the last several years would have had to either show real business or they would have to you know find other ways to exit so i think it is a healthy correction of course when such correction happens it creates pressure on everyone i'd say if someone is looking to start a company as long as they have a good team and a good idea good good thesis behind that and validation it's a great time to start a company probably any time is a great time to start a company if that is what one wants to do because building a company you really want to build a long term company as opposed to building something and selling it moving to the next one which again is fine depending on what your personal goals are it takes a few decades to build a meaningful company the average time to go ipo for companies has been 12 years and the best companies actually see real growth after they have gone public so when you were looking at a one or two decade horizon you are going to go through a few economic cycles in that process and you have to be ready you always have to be able to deal with them whether you are starting a company you are in in growth phase or you are a public company of course it's never easy and it's never fun but you have to one always try to run a company in a responsible manner so that you are not overstretching yourself when you are not able to handle a correction and second when things change you have to adapt you have to have a culture that is adaptable so you made a great point about how this is actually a good thing the correction that we are seeing in some ways perhaps because we had been in an unsustainable momentum if you will in terms of being overcapitalized the other part of the question was you know just given your general thesis if you will or preference to start companies in existing markets being a disruptor in existing market versus going after a new market yeah. Yeah. Uh, right the market risk versus execution risk do you think that that still applies especially when large enterprises want to do business with existing vendors like known vendors in particular sure. so for your listeners that may not have heard about it before let me share that sort of risk management philosophy or framework or whatever you want to call it yeah, I, yeah that'd be I, helpful i look at risk in a startup in two buckets market risk and execution risk market risk is is there a market for what i'm trying to build and execution is this is simply can i build it and sell and scale the business the reason i talk about this is not to say there is only one right answer personally for me i have been some of it is accidents that happen over time you know who you meet who you start companies with what you learn and so forth some of it is choice so a combination of those have led to experiences where i always found that if i can establish that there is a large existing market where technology has become old and it has produced multiple winners in the past it tells me that there is a time for a big change and it tells me that the market risk is going to be low so i like to have personally just low market risk and high execution risk low market risk because i find that market risk is not something you can control quite to to any extent it's beyond you execution risk is you can something you can control by building a great team culture empowering people being ambitious being adaptable those kinds of things so i like low market risk and high execution risk personally but it doesn't mean that 
that's the only way or the right way. In fact, if we have to build a society that keeps evolving and keeps growing, we need both kinds of people. People that are good at taking a 15-year-old market and reimagining it and solving same or similar problems in, in a much, much better way. Uh, at the same time, there have to be people that are excited about you know, science experiments. And it doesn't matter if there is a market or not, but they have a belief that market will be created as they go along. Either they will be able to create a market or there is some external macro trend that will help creation of that market. And that is how a lot of successful startups are built as well. So I think that sort of way of looking at it to the extent it is interesting to people, it still applies and it's not a better or worse time. It's more of a personal preference and it looks like it's actually just transcends over regardless of which economic cycle we are in, especially as you think about it, which is, you know, it is about building sustainable long-term businesses. You are going to have ups and downs in economic cycles. So this is more about your personal preference. And then I also really loved your point about the society needs both. I think in one of your write-ups, you had called out, I think, SpaceX as an example of one of those companies, high execution risk, high market risk, and definitely the universe needs more of those also, uh, not, yeah. not just one category. Yeah, yeah. I think market risk execution is almost an axiom. These are two kinds of things. There's nothing rocket science in what I'm talking about. It's just that sometimes entrepreneurs may not be as disciplined to understand Mm-hmm. where their idea rates on the market risk and execution. It's just that you have to be conscious of these things and whatever type of risk you're taking, you have to make sure that you then take action to mitigate that and actually thrive on that because value doesn't create, get created without taking risks. And as entrepreneurs, it's our job to identify the right kind of risk that we can actually take and, and overcome so we can create value for our customers. Absolutely. So knowing where you are, what risks you have, and then mitigating it in a very systematic manner, that is what you're saying entrepreneurs should do. One other question on the topic of risks, and especially in this economic context, having been a founder who's seen ups and downs, are there any tips that you can share with founders in as far as trying to manage their own mindset is concerned, especially in such a down market? You know, this is obviously something they cannot control. Any advice on how to manage their mindsets about it? Yeah, there is no silver bullet, but there's a few things that I found useful. One, uh, just talking to peers. Talk to many other people that are sort of in, in similar stage as you. Because sometimes it can get very dark. You know, you can end up in a very, very dark place if you start to just absorb the whole thing by yourself. And one, don't understand that it's not just an issue you are facing. It's something that many, many people are facing. So one... You have a sense of, you know, team or camaraderie or not being alone and less sense of guilt. You know, sometimes people can also feel that I've done something wrong and I'm not able to raise money and I'm not able to sell more. So I need to do work harder and those kinds of things can happen. That can be helpful to be able to deal with difficult situations. You have to bring your best out. And if you are depressed, just thinking everything is going wrong, then you won't be able to bring your best out. So talk to other people and understand what they are seeing. And maybe some of them are not seeing this. And then you can ask them why and what are they doing? Right. So that can give you a lot of good ideas. Second is, unless the time of reckoning has come and you realize that what you're building, actually there is not a market for it. Right. Because so many companies have gotten funded and some of them are reaching a stage where they're just not able to raise money because there is no traction, there's no proof that there is a market for what they're building. So if 
This is a forcing function for you to get honest with yourself and your team and your investors. This is a good time to do that too. But if there is enough proof that what you're building or want to build has value for your customers, then you have to make sure that your survival is never a question. Survival of the company is always ensured. There is no one answer for this. Sometimes you raise more money, sometimes you have to cut costs, sometimes you have to push off some projects that you were planning to take, however painful these decisions might be. But people that have worked with you so far and you know your team that has put in, depending on how old the company you are, people might have put in years or decades into your company. So you have to make sure, even if they're not working with you, all your shareholders, employees, everybody has the right to expect nothing but honesty from you. And if that means you have to take some hard calls to ensure survival so that you can adapt to changes, you must do that. Of course, one has to, at least in case of enterprise, I've seen that selling to your existing customers can be relative, nothing is easy, but selling to your existing customers, if you have a good value prop, if you have treated them well, you can sell them more. You can sometimes even be open with them that, hey, our company is actually going through a rough patch because of the economy and we're not able to get a lot of new customers. So are there other opportunities within your organization that we could address? Or could we look at what you might need over the next two years and and you can buy that now? Again, on a case-by-case basis, you can focus more on your existing customers versus new customers because new customers sometimes can be harder in this environment. If you have a strong partner network, then partners can be helpful. Again, it comes down to how you have treated people, how you have engaged with them, whether it's your partners, your investors, your team. They are going to stand by you. They're going to work with you. If you have to make hard decisions, you have to cut costs, you have to make organizational changes. They will not be happy about all of that, but they'll understand and appreciate that you're going through process. And what about, you know, as it relates to like risk and managing, you know, the way you frame risk. I want to touch a little about maybe AI. So ThoughtSpot was a pioneer in the early adoption of AI. And so at least it seems from kind of the outside, you know, as you were early there, like, how did you weigh those? Like, now is the time to do something like this. And what are some of the lessons that you learned from being early to market with some of those AI capabilities? Yeah. So ThoughtSpot has been very driven by the user experience. And I was very fortunate that I was exposed to the power of user experience very early in my career, even before I came to the Valley and, you know, was exposed to startups. A long time ago, I worked at Honeywell and uh, had an opportunity 2003, 2004, around that time frame, we worked on a new product with the IDEO, the famous design consulting firm. We worked with them on designing a new product. And that just opened my mind how software can actually be built. And that's been a very important part of building both Nutanix and ThoughtSpot. Nutanix, our mission was to simplify data centers. How do you make the life of people that are responsible for running and operating these data centers easier? And in ThoughtSpot, we are basically trying to simplify access to data. So we have been very driven by a user experience first approach. And then we basically just gone to the whiteboard and used the best and latest technology that is available to us. We didn't start ThoughtSpot by thinking that, oh, we need to go start an AI company or it's like saying, I want to go start a Java company or a C++ company. It makes no sense. Even now, I see so many companies saying, I'm doing Copilot for this or Copilot for that. I think you have to start with the business problem you're trying to solve. You have to start with how you want to approach it, unless you are in the infrastructure space. So certainly there are some companies right now that are building this new kind of infrastructure. OpenAI being one of them and, and several others, that then various application 
uh, developers can use and build new kinds of experiences for their customers. So that is completely legit. But I think if someone is starting a company right now, just thinking there is AI and I must you know, build something around it, you can still build a successful company because it's uh, basically a probabilistic game. But I think people will be better served if they were to start with the problem they are trying to solve and not worry about what specific technology they're going to use. And AI is not just one thing, you know, so many types of technologies within that. And you should just use all the tools that make sense to use to solve the problem. So that's the approach we took at ThoughtSpot. Now, when we started using AI, it was tricky because, again, depending on the application, if you're building, say, a recommendation engine and you are doing recommendation of songs, there's no incorrect recommendation. It may not be good recommendation, but there's nothing incorrect about it, right? In my Spotify or whatever my favorite music app is, I see certain recommendations and over time they can get better and that's okay. But we were in this space where we are doing, actually we are crunching numbers and ultimately we are presenting insights where our customers are making business decisions. They are making decisions about which customers to market to or how to use the money they have or how many people to hire or how to make salary adjustments. These are real decisions they have to make. So numbers have to add up. You know, one plus one has to be equal to two if you're in the analytics uh, space, in the business intelligence space. So we had to do this sort of trade-off between accuracy or think about how we do trade-off between accuracy, flexibility that we give to our users and the user experience and transparency. Because end of the day, these kinds of trust is the of the filter that decides which of these technologies get adopted versus which ones don't get adopted. And I like to think about four things that help people define you know, whether the users will trust their product or not. There's four things, security, transparency, accuracy, and relevance. And it nicely abbreviates to STAR. But um, security, if I'm going to use data for AI, are my customers going to give me uh, their data? And it will only happen if they're comfortable that data will be secure and will be safely used. Transparency, can I demonstrate how my technology is working? And sometimes the end user may not be able to appreciate that, but at least for experts, we should be able to demonstrate what is happening under the hood. Accuracy, depending on the use case, if I'm doing song recommendations, it's okay if I'm, you know, 60-70% accurate. But if I'm processing insurance applications or insurance claims, I have to be 100% accurate. I cannot deny somebody's claim just because, you know, my AI model wasn't right. That will have a very direct impact on somebody's life. And last one is relevance. If my app that I'm using, it shows information that is relevant to me, I will inherently have more trust whether it's a news app or an enterprise app or a music app or whatever it might be. So we try and apply these sort of core product principles to how we build the ThoughtSpot product and provide transparency to our customers um, where they needed it so they can see I'm typing. It's, we built a new kind of search engine that can crunch numbers. You type something in a search bar and we share results. And, but we also showed them how we took that, that search query that they typed and under the hood, how we translate it into a database query so that people that are sort of experts, at least they can validate that our translation is accurate. So that when we roll it out to a thousand marketing people or HR people, they are not getting wrong results. It's fascinating. And I love that star mnemonic device as well. That's great. You know, you focused in that response a lot about just user centricity, empathy for, for the user, making sure you're solving user problems. I'd love to hear a little bit about as 
especially as startups, you know, focus on users, they're selling to, you know, especially in an, an enterprise or potentially even, you know, a company that that's buying it. Can you talk a little bit about, do you ever regret like onboarding a certain type of customer too soon? Maybe the company wasn't ready or the product wasn't ready. Actually, before starting Nutanix, I worked at a startup. It was a very good startup. We landed a really large customer very early in the life of the company. It was a multi-million dollar customer. But I think that's the best and the worst thing that happened to that company. <laughs> it was the best thing because, you know, we got really good investors. We were able to recruit really well. Oh, look, this company X is using using my product, so it must be good. The challenge, though, was that it was such a big customer for such a small company that now the only thing they were doing, or we were doing, actually, was to support that customer. We had our engineers round the clock, on call, watching the system, babysitting it, making sure it is working well. And the system wasn't really good. Enterprise products, it takes some time to make them really fortified and be able to handle large scale and provide reliability, availability, these things don't at least in those days, when you didn't have cloud, now cloud services take care of a lot of those issues. But there you had to build reliability, availability, and you know a lot of things under the hood that didn't come out of the box. You were running on commodity hardware. So in companies that we started, we always tried to not get over lopsided when it came to you know one customer dictating our terms and being too big, too important. Every customer is important. And I always say that even if it is the smallest customer, they should get the same thing. They should feel, they should experience that they are the only customer. Uh, they're very, very important to us. So I'll give you this interesting story. When we did our Series B announcement, Hotspot, based on that press release, there was a Fortune 5 company that reached out to us and said, what you're building looks very promising. They've been thinking about something similar. Can you make it work for us? And our sales team was super excited, but I told them that let's go and politely Tell them that we'll come back to you in a couple of years. Are not ready for you. So the customer said, no, 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 we should talk. So I, I met with them. I met the leader there. And I told them that we don't want to work with you right now because you'll really dictate terms and you will then have a big feature list that, that may or may not be the right thing for our broader customer population. And we don't want to build a product that is an overfit to one customer's needs. But they turned out to be actually a really good customer. They said, no, we will never push you to do things that are not right for you. We'll give you requirements, but we'll understand if you can't meet all of them. And we sort of operated that way. You know, we signed them up. They became a really large customer for us and helped make our system more robust. But they were also patient and tolerant to some of the early you know, products, issues that most products would have. So we were able to find that balance. But in general, I've shied away from enabling sales team to support very very large customers too early. That's a really great example. And typically I don't hear examples that are, I think, so successful. So I'd love to know any kind of guidance or advice you have for founders around the role that they should play in kind of qualifying those sorts of customers that that might look like they're outside the bounds and kind of how to avoid the traps of onboarding the wrong kind of customer. You know, the answer really depends on what the specific situation is. Are you a early stage company? Are you a growth company? Or do you have five customers? Do you have 500 customers? And in what way is this customer wrong for you? Right. So a few things that have helped me and I can speak to more sort of enterprise B2B context is if you're an early stage founder, hiring salespeople that are sort of, that are interested in the product is a good qualifier because you know, really good salespeople are good at understanding customer needs and, and selling, but you don't never want to oversell. 
And that's why, in early, at least particularly in early stages, you want to have sales team, a sales team that understands the limitations of the product and can position them appropriately with the customer. And they don't won't do a wrong deal because sometimes you end up with situations where without even founders knowing, some promises have been made to customers. And then sales uh, transaction is done and commissions have been paid and you find out six months later when things are not working that they were oversold. So you have to culturally ensure that you are getting the right people on your sales team. And you have to you know, be actively involved in sales cycles and not because if you have the right salespeople, they would want you to be involved as well. And always being open with the customer about the gaps that mm-hmm. you might have, at least specifically there are tons of gaps always, but the ones that you know are relevant to the customer, if you know something about the customer that will make your product not the right fit for them, you have to politely tell them that. You know, I should spend my time somewhere else and it's not a good use of their time either because ultimately maybe you're able to get a small deal done but you won't grow with them they'll find out you'll have a bad reputation and you have very limited resources and you want to invest those resources on customers where you are a right fit and if you just can't find any customer that is not the right fit you should rethink your product what you're building that makes sense and that helps and I think what we've seen is just it's difficult to have that discipline when you start to see large enterprise checks. There's an allure to that, that, you know, I think you've given some good guidance as to how to stay engaged to make sure that despite the size of a check that might, you know, be coming that your way, you're making the right decision for the kind of the team, the, the company, the product. Yeah, that's one thing that helps. Again, if you're a lot of buying, by the way, now has buying process has also changed with product-led growth. You no longer can trick your customers anyway. Because they're going to know about it, really, and they're going to try your product. And you want to enable that motion. That is really important. Otherwise, the cost of customer acquisition will be very high. So I think some of those risks are going away in the market. SaaS and self-service and and product-led growth. It's very hard to build a product and sell a product that customers don't really want. Consumption-based pricing, you're you're doing consumption-based pricing. You're not going to grow your consumption if the product is not the right fit for the customer. If you're doing subscription, you're going to have churn. And it's actually better to not have that customer, maybe get another customer a month or two later, and then not have the churn on the back end. Because if you create a leaky bucket by selling to customers that are not the right fit for you, you're going to have to pay back. Yeah, and that's a very poor business to begin with. One other thing I just wanted to underscore here that, you know, I think when we were discussing about the advice that you have for founders on their mindset in this market, and then, you know, this again came up in a couple of different contexts, is on candor. I think there is a lot to be said about having candid conversations with your customers, like you've suggested, whether it be in the context of, hey, you know, it's a tough time for all of us in the market, you know, introduce us to more groups within your within your company, things like that, all the way up to, you know, being candid with the prospective customer saying, hey, you know, we are flattered that you want to talk to us, but just know that, you know, we are a seed stage company. We are still working through our MVP. You know, all those things are very important. Sorry, I was just going to add, if you do that, those customers actually will make sure they work with you because they don't, you're not going to trick them. 100%. And that candor is also very necessary and useful internally with your board, with your team. And of course, you have to do it in the right way. If you start to, uh, candor doesn't mean that you start to hit panic buttons. There is a difference, right? Being able to communicate that here is a problem, but this is how we are addressing it. 
Or what do you think we should do if the person you're talking to is mature enough to actually have that discussion with you? I mean, your board members, for example, then you must do that. And your leadership team in the company, you have to have people where you can have those discussions and they can be a good sounding board. Some of them might be more experienced than you. And if you're shy to bring up problems with them, if you're shy to have discussions about these sort of existential risks that are bothering you, then you probably haven't recruited the right people. Yep, yep. Well, externally and internally, the right kind of candor is, is important. For sure, setting the right tone for the company and the culture. So, so switching topics here, Ajit, you, know, you brought up OpenAI very briefly a few minutes ago. So in the data and developer infrastructure space in particular, there are many people, especially since OpenAI's Dev Day that happened a week ago, these folks that I'm referring to are, for the most part, not founders, but you know they have been going around saying that OpenAI or Microsoft basically one of these large companies they're saying would almost capture all of the value that is coming out of the new AI ecosystem, leaving little room for startups. The reason that we wanted to bring this up with you is because we felt like maybe you might have heard something similar being said about Nutanix, especially since you were building Nutanix at a time when the likes of AWS and even Azure and GCP, they were still, you know, infants perhaps, but at some point they were having astronomical growth. We were wondering, you know, in the the kinds of lessons that you had from that time, how do you put that in the current perspective? Yeah, again, it's sort of a multi-layered question that you're asking me there. Right now, there's a lot of people running around with a lot of opinions. Honestly, I think 2023 is the year in which the whole world is in a big hackathon. It's a big hackathon. We are all experimenting. We are all learning. Nobody really knows exactly how some of these things are going to play out. Right? That's the reality. Yep. So I think it's a great time to experiment, try, learn, fail. I think it's also important to not have short-term greed. What I mean is if you think, oh, OpenAI has this new capability and I can just use it and in two weeks I can launch a new product and I can start selling it and make a bunch of money, I don't think that works. Or you're able to raise a bunch of money on this hype I don't think that works. It's fine to use this opportunity to validate ideas, to prototype really quickly, understand what problems customers want solved and how they want them solved. But the short-term greed needs to be avoided. When such big changes happen, obviously the pendulum is going to swing and ultimately settle somewhere in the middle, right? If you go to the early part of this year, everybody was extremely gung-ho about doing new things, building new companies, opening eyes here, I can do this, I can do that. Investors were trying to find companies they can invest in and so on. And then now people are realizing that, oh, that doesn't really work. You can't just put a you know shim on top of some of these third-party services and sell that as a product to customers. Because one, you get disrupted, and second, the product doesn't really work. It's a concept card. Completely. Curious to know if you had you know heard similar objections at any point towards Nutanix, there's always people throwing these things that, you know, a big company can do everything. That is true. Yep. Even AI, VI, nothing. It doesn't really matter, right? Yep. You're a networking company, Cisco can do this. If you're a database company, Oracle can do this. Could Oracle have done what Snowflake did? Yes, they had the engineers to do it. In fact, Oracle, founders of Snowflake came from Oracle. <laughs> yeah, Oracle OBI right? predates Snowflake by like two, three decades. Yeah, and the database team. I mean, so it's not, it's the environment, you know, to do something new. You need a new fertile ground that doesn't have a lot of baggage, a lot of history. If you're managing a multi-billion dollar revenue stream, making a change there, it takes a lot of time. 
Now, there is some real innovation happening in OpenAI is I mean, all said and done. It's an extremely successful startup, but their own business model, and they're doing a great favor to the, to the society because some of the things that they are launching, the concepts have been there, theory has been there, but they really made it accessible to everyone. And everybody can now experiment and learn and build new kinds of things. And of course, all the big players are making their own moves, Microsoft and Amazon and Google and, and so forth. And there will be some real innovation that will come out of these companies. But if the history is to be believed, and it, it always works this way, that the ability of you know, a couple of really great entrepreneurs to come together and have a unique point of view on customer problem, on a given customer problem, and have no baggage, but to really build a new kind of solution from scratch, I don't think a big company can actually do that because they have too much baggage. They're too big. There are too many people with their own vested interests. There is too much politics going on. Everybody's got their OKRs and annual uh, goals to hit and all of that, right? So that is where the efficiency is extremely different for a startup versus a large company. Now, as a startup, what should you work on versus not? I think it's, there's no one answer. It really depends on the scenario. But I'll go back to the same thing. Really deeply understand your customer's problem. Solve it in a fundamental way. You have to know what is your foundational mode. You have to have a point of view on that. If you're just a, a translation uh, layer on top of some external API, it's it's very hard. Unless you have some unique distribution advantage, which again, a startup is not going to have. And in today's world, in, with SaaS and cloud, everybody can distribute. Distribution has actually become very, very easy. That makes sense. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about I don't know if I want to say founder traps or some some other lessons learned, but one of the things that you've spoken a lot about and I, I've read a lot about is just the importance of people. I think in one of your posts, I remember, you know, it was a point where it was recruit, recruit, recruit. Even that point in the a blog post that you had that that said that quickly goes to say, you know, talks about the importance of people. And then you said, and I got it right a lot and I got it wrong a lot. So I'd love to have you elaborate a little bit on that. Can you, you know, especially any advice to early stage founders around what they should or shouldn't do on the people front? Right. People, again, is a a big topic, as you know, probably can't cover it all here and I don't know it all. But just based on my experiences, I think I got it right quite a bit in hiring people with the right mindset and building the right culture. On an average, I think we did well when it came to building a positive environment. You know, people that worked at Nutanix and ThoughtSpot found that a really, really positive environment, relatively less politics, relatively less time spent on unproductive discussions, more transparency and stuff like that. The Some of the mistakes I made in early part of my entrepreneurial career, I would say mostly around recruiting leaders when it came to business leaders or even I would say technical leaders, operational leaders, that uh, when we were recruiting for very senior roles, if they had a lot of experience, I think everybody knows how to say the right thing. By that time, they have learned enough that they can say all the right things when you do meet them. When you interview them, the resume is pretty decent when it comes to skills and, and so forth. But once you start working, you start to see you know issues. And oftentimes, those issues can be motivation-related. They're just not motivated enough to bring that, you know, hunger to the table that is required to build a company from the ground up. What I learned over time is to, one, really do deep reference checks. And you do it, you know, transparently. You tell them that I need to do reference checks and you do blind reference checks on people. 
that you always learn more by talking to someone that has worked with someone versus hearing it from them. And uh, the other thing is, I found is that I like to give people some sort of a, a growth opportunity. doesn't matter what level I'm hiring at. Give them something that they haven't had before. And it's not about just the title. On some important dimension, and it's almost never about the money. Or I should say, at least I have never hired someone because I was able to excite them just by money. Let's keep the financial, of course, there's a risk reward in a startup, right? So keep that aside. Whether it is their responsibility, whether it is a domain, whether it is the level at which they're going to be operating, it could be something, but it has to be something new for them that motivates them, that connects with them. And then I've found that people will really, really do their best, try their best, at least, if you're able to do that, as opposed to recruiting someone who might have a strong resume, but doesn't have enough motivation to be open, to learn. Uh, because every environment, different things are changing. It is not someone who comes in with a growth mindset. They come with a very sort of well-defined playbook that has worked well for them in the past. And they would flash it and they would sell it. And that's how they would operate. But it can lead to issues because they're not adapting. Yeah. You know, one more question on the the kind of the founder trap or lessons learned sort of front is... You don't have to dig too deep on your background to see some information around kind of that you're known for having spent a year um, kind of researching and before committing to the solution or the idea, you know, behind Nutanix, behind ThoughtSpot. And so it seems like part of that research and that discipline has been a large part of your success. So I'd love to hear about the the opposite or the tension. Have you ever felt there was, you know, a time or a lesson learned where, you know, you felt like you weren't moving fast enough or you needed to? Any advice on like to founders on on that tension of thoughtfulness and, and speed, which yeah. seem to be constantly at odds? Yeah, no, certainly. And it's a tough one because you have to be good at both. Mm-hmm. My view is that you have to be good at both and you have to be good at identifying in what situation you need to be more thoughtful and in what situation you want to move fast. Sometimes I hear... People say, oh, I'm a very thoughtful person. And they say it as a matter of pride. Or they might say, I like to move fast. And they say it as a matter of pride. I think uh, if you can only do one and not the other, and you don't know how to, for a given decision, which mode to be in, it's going to be a limitation. So if I'm making a decision which will have an impact on the company for the next 10 years, I want to be thoughtful. I think if I spend a year making sure that we're talking to customers, looking at competition, understanding what customers need, how, what has changed, are there new technologies that enable new kind of solutions? All these things go into... Research, I think, is not the right term. It's not like we're just sitting in a, you know, going to a lab and just mixing some chemicals and see what comes out. We are actually going and meeting with people, talking to them, learning from them, without being caught up in the details of how exactly we have to do something or what are we building. So if I'm doing something like that, if I'm making a decision that will, that's hard to reverse, and a lot of leaders, you know, have their way of explaining it. Jeff Bezos famously talked about, you know, if it is a door, I can, it's a one-way door and it's an important one. I want to make sure that I, I think about what's on, should I enter that door or not. But if it is a decision that can easily be changed, then there's no point in uh, being too deliberate about it. You should think be still thoughtful but you can make very quick decisions because you will never have perfect data for most of the decisions that you're making in context of a startup also listening to people around you giving them sort of this psychological safety they can speak up if they see issues that you might not be seeing they should be able to 
bring that up so you can make better decisions as a team. But I don't think it's one or the other, no matter what you might hear from people about what they are good at. And so last topic for today, Ajit. So we're both of Indian origin. So this is a topic close to our roots. Labor arbitrage that companies that start off out of India have is not nothing, anything new. But there is something new and special that's been going on of late, which is companies running entire go-to-market out of India. This is something that you know is a topic that you're passionate about. So could you maybe unpack for us, for our audience in particular here, about what is going on? And if they early stage founders who have, let's say, fledgling go-to-market operations today, how can they start thinking about tapping into India for that? Yeah, I'm actually very passionate about this topic. And it is not just India, but being able to understand what kind of talent is available where across the globe and being able to tap into it. It's so important. You know, there is a lot of good stuff in in Latin America. There is a lot of good teams and talent in, in Europe. So I think sometimes in Silicon Valley, we have this mentality that Silicon Valley has best of breed in everything. I don't think that is true anymore. And if you are building a startup with that mentality, you're going to have a tough time. You are going to have a tough time recruiting. Your costs are going to be unrealistic. And Silicon Valley got so hot that it was unrealistic. The kind of money people had been expecting, it is just unbelievable. And it takes away opportunity from many other good people that could be doing a better job of what you need done. I would say having that global mindset that a lot of things can be done from many different places in the world, that is important. I can speak to India in particular more because I have personally, as you said, more experience. And last two, three years, actually, I've connected with a lot of SaaS founders from India who are building companies that sell to global customers, particularly in B2B space. North America tends to be 70% or so of the overall market. So it is very important that they are able to sell into this market. And a lot of them reach out to me and they want to, you know, learn from our experiences of building uh, ThoughtSpot and Nutanix and so forth. And obviously, there have been a lot of changes that have been going on in how enterprise technology is bought and sold. I talk to a lot of them, and oftentimes I learn from them. I mean, they are doing a lot of innovative things sitting out of India. I know of startups that are doing million-plus-dollar deals with Fortune 100, Fortune 50 companies in U.S., and bulk of their team is not in U.S., so if you want to grow, if you want to grow responsibly and, and tap talent that is global, I think people, I would encourage them to really go spend time with founders from across the globe. I mean, there are big companies that have been built out of Australia. It depends on the personal connection that founders might have because that's always helpful, uh, being able to understand the local culture, being able to find the right leaders because you do need leaders that you can uh, trust and, and delegate to. Uh, if you want to have a distributed team. But I think if someone is operating in a Silicon Valley-only mode, it is, it's a high risk. I'm sure Tim agrees with you, especially violently, considering he's not based in Silicon Valley. He's in Portland, Oregon. I know we are over time here. Thank you for being so generous with your time and wisdom, Anjit. We really learned a lot through this. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much, Tim and uh, Vidya, for having me. And thanks for all your great questions. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Enterprise GTM podcast. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, 
we'd appreciate a rating on your favorite podcast platform so we can continue to help enterprise founders thrive. Thrive.